This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Kids, you are dismissed. Today's reading is John 6, 1 to 21. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test them, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this, true, this truly is the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was a pretty amazing reader right there. <laughs> Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability that we have to, to read your word and study your word and hear you speak to us from your word. Father, we, um, we say this often and we believe this, that uh, in the midst of uh, very divided times, and one could argue we've always been divided and we're even more exposed now, but God, in, in the midst of division, in the midst of frustration, in the midst of hurt, pain, God, ultimately, even in this season, uh, we, we know that we don't need another political platform. And we know we don't need another political party. We don't need uh, another uh, candidate. Father, we need your spirit. And we need your spirit to speak to us today. So God, I pray that you would do that, that you would speak through uh, your word as you illuminate our understanding in your spirit. God, we pray that this would happen so that we would truly see you in the midst of the storm, in the midst of our hunger, in the midst of our needs, the things we perceive to be our greatest needs. Father, I pray that we would see you above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through this series on John, and uh, we've been spending a lot of time uh, focusing on John because of some of the uniqueness in his gospel compared to the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
And we've uh, been spending a good deal looking at some, some, ver- some things that you really only see in John. This particular story, Jesus feeding the 5,000, uh, if you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard this story, you've read this, engaged it, studied it, uh, we've, we've, we've learned and gleaned and got different application points from it. This story is a very unique one because it's the only miracle that's actually mentioned in all four Gospels together. You know, we talked about how many of the Gospels, the, the authors have different themes, different points they're trying to get across. And so one might include this miracle to make this point, and one might include this miracle over here to make a different point. But this particular miracle shows up in all four Gospels. And it's really unique uh, because John still takes, uh, he, f- he focuses his attention on some things that maybe the others don't. And so keep that in mind. As we go through John, we're going to see some things that John points out that you don't really see in the other Gospels. Uh, but let me ask you this question. Today, just think through the things that you're feeling, the things you've been thinking about, the things you've experienced, the questions you've been asking. And if we were to catalog the answer to this question, I wonder what it would be. Here's the question. What are your greatest needs right now? And honestly, just think through to yourself, what are your greatest needs right now? As you think through that, think, think through, maybe even, maybe figure it this way. The reason why I have to ask you this question is because however you answer that, that directs our motivations, that directs our intentions, that directs what we think, it directs what we say, it directs how we live. It directs how we engage each other. How you answer that question really does kind of determine the rest of your life. What do you believe are your greatest needs? Back in the 1940s, there was a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow who theorized that uh, all of human behavior, all of uh, human uh, motivations can really be boiled down to five major categories of need. Today we know it as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And, and basically what he believed and what he had tried to demonstrate was that for most, if not all people, there are some basic needs at a very low level and you have to graduate past those to meet some of these deeper needs in order to be completely fulfilled. And so those needs, uh, we, we know they're, they're very basic, they're easy to kind of point out. Uh, the, the first one is kind of the physiological need. Very basic, right? What do you need physiologically? You need food, you need water, water, you need to be able to breathe, you need shelter, we need clothing. And so the idea was when people have those basic needs met, then they're able to move to the next level of need, which is safety or security. That can fall in financial security, health and wellness, safety against accidents, finding a job, health insurance, Healthcare, investing in preparing for the future, retirement, moving into a safe neighborhood, getting a quality education. All those things are very viable needs, needs that we all can understand and appreciate, right? Before you ever even think about, I want to make sure that I can invest money well, you want to make sure that you at least can breathe, right? It's really basic. So you go from physiological to safety. Then you go from safety to the kind of social needs or love and belonging. And so his idea was that when you move from the physiological, you move to finally feeling like you're secure, now you can reach out for friendships, 
romantic attachments, family, social groups, community groups, churches, religious organizations. And the idea is that when you have that, that helps you avoid loneliness, depression, anxiety. Then he moves to kind of the higher end needs. Once you get past those, now the higher end needs are uh, these ideas of like esteem, right? This need to be esteemed, a need for appreciation, a need for respect, a need for personal worth, a need for self-esteem. And then finally, at the very top, is this idea of self-actualization, the idea of being self-aware. His idea was that the people who hit this phase, this, this highest level of needs being fulfilled, those are the ones that are focused on personal growth, fully confident in their uh, abilities. They're less concerned about the opinions of others and more interested in fulfilling their own potential. Now, I lay this out because on some, on some level, all of these things do get addressed by Jesus when you look throughout his life. There are different needs that you see him meeting, but Jesus actually shows us that that top level, that idea of self-actualization is the highest need you have, is a lie. That's not the greatest need that we have. There's actually a need much higher than that. And Jesus shows that. When I asked you what your greatest needs were, somewhere in that pyramid, there were needs that you had that fit there, right? There are people here that uh, desperately want uh, different employment, or maybe they just need more money, or there are people who are lonely and you'd love to have some form of companionship. Maybe you feel like, hey, some things have happened that have got me really down on myself, and I just, maybe I'm not seeing myself the way that I should. All of those things are very normal, and all of, none of those things are bad. Some of your greatest needs fall into, into that category. But Jesus shows us something very unique here. As we look through this story, you're going to see some of those needs on display. And yet Jesus is showing us that, hey, there's, there, there are needs that you have. Put it like this. There are needs that you perceive to be your greatest needs. Those are your felt needs. Then you have deeper needs that you may not even know you have, but I do, and I've come to meet those. That's who Jesus is. And so when we uh, walk through this, think through that. Think, start asking as we look through this text again. What needs are on display? What do the people seem like they need most? And it's important because what you determine to be your greatest need, that will shape the Jesus you claim you want. Whatever it is that you claim is your greatest need, that's going to shape the Jesus that you, that you worship, the Jesus that you follow, the Jesus that you actually want. And so when you look at this, this gospel, here John is, giving us this story that the other gospel writers have mentioned. John's the only one that ties it to this, uh, this festival, right? The scripture says that uh, after this, and by the way, that after this, keep in mind, what it just, we already know what had already happened, right? In chapter five, well, we don't really know how much time elapsed. It's just sometime after this. We think it's probably a good bit of time because now we're at a second Passover already. Remember the first few chapters we'd seen Jesus act on that first year of his ministry, Passover. So this is at least year two at some point in his ministry. And it says, after this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Now, this, remember what Jesus complained about at the end of chapter five? We talked about this, right? 
He pointed out uh, the fact that these folks had been reading. They were good Jewish followers. They had followed the scriptures. They had been reading Moses. They had been reading the prophets, and they were, they were creating some of these rules because they were trusting the, the word or the law of God much more than the heart of God. And, and Jesus started pointing out, you guys, you're reading the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And he basically points out, if you had really understood these, you would have known who I am. You'd have believed me in the one who sent me, but you don't. So he's kind of chastised them for not understanding or believing what Moses had written. Then he ushers us right into this scene that takes place at Passover. But not only uh, taking place at Passover, this is one of the great events that's actually associated with Moses. Jesus has already said, y'all read Moses and you don't get him. And then he walks into this festival that really is a time that people remember Moses best. The idea of the Passover, the idea of keeping these festivals or remembering the things that the forefathers had done and the ways that God had kept his promises. And Moses was regarded as their greatest prophet. And so you have this text that kind of overflows. And I'm going to say this text is kind of, in some ways, tying Jesus in this moment to echoes of Exodus, echoes of things that you constantly see as a theme amongst Jewish communities. So he's going to, and there's a reason why he's going to make this comparison. So the beginning of chapter six, you see this, this incredible kind of, as a quick overview of the chapter, you see this incredible supernatural feeding and, and, and salvation from the sea. And, and, and you start seeing kind of, they cro- he crosses the sea, and you, and you almost remember some things that Moses did in the sea. You start seeing a testing that happens a few verses down. You see Jesus commands that the pieces are gathered up so that nothing is wasted, just like Moses commanded in Exodus 16. You see Jesus goes up to the mountain. Notice that it's simply not a mountain in verse 3. In fact, the text says that after the feeding, Jesus withdrew to the mountain, Perhaps the repeated mention of the mountain is intended to recall that other mountain in Israel's story where Moses met God. There's a comparison here that's being drawn. And then the people start, we find out way later, the people start grumbling just like Israel did in the wilderness. So you're going to see this, this, these, these echoes of Exodus throughout this text, this comparison that's being made. Another thing we need to remember when we think about Passover is that we said this before, Passover was, was, was a festival of really national liberation from a foreign oppressor. They were remembering the time that they had been oppressed by this, uh, in their mind, this, this oppressive uh, government that had enslaved them. And so uh, when you think about that, it's going to make sense why they reacted to Jesus the way that they did, because the Jesus that they wanted looked very different from the Jesus that actually showed up. And so I think the reason why it's so important to look at this is to think through just how unique this story is when you compare Jesus to Moses. So look at this. Now the Passover, Jewish festival was near. So when Jesus looked up, noticed a huge crowd coming toward him. He asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? Now what do we see about Jesus here? You notice that uh, ultimately Jesus has been doing all of these miracles all this time. People have been hearing about Jesus. They've been hearing the things that he's done. Some of them, they've witnessed some of the things that he's done. There was a man who was crippled for 38 years, and they saw that he was healed. And the man goes into town and tells everybody what he did. So you realize there's like almost a traveling circus that's there. They're going, man, this guy has done some amazing things. I don't quite know 
really who he is or how he's doing it. I have some ideas I want to see. So you've got this massive group of folks that are just following him. And they hear that, that he's over, over there by uh, uh, Lake... Well, when you go to Israel, they kind of tell you uh, the Sea of Galilee is often called Lake Galilee when you see it. It almost looks like a lake. And so they're, they're like, oh, he's over there. Let's go. Let's go check him out. Now, Jesus sees, and he knows where, where their hearts are. He knows what they're wanting from him. But he also sees that they're hungry. Think about this. Jesus stops what he's doing because he sees the actual felt needs of the people. He's got his own agenda, and yet he stops to go, there's a need here. These folks are hungry. So he stops and he says, hey, what are we gonna do about feeding these folks? Where, where, uh, what are we gonna do to make sure that they have food to eat? And he asked Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? The scripture says he, had, he asked this to test them, for he himself knew what he was gonna do. We did this again, right? Jesus asks questions. Anytime he asks questions, it's not because he doesn't have the answer. He's not even asking questions to get more information from you. In many ways, he asks questions for you to be able to kind of hear how your heart is oriented, for you to be able to see where you are or where you aren't, and for you to acknowledge you don't even have the answer. And so he asked Philip this question, and it's such an interesting question because he's, he's testing him, and Philip says, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. Now, here's what we have to understand about this. This is a huge amount of money, which tells you there were a, a ton of people there. Now, here's something that the scripture tells us there were 5,000 men that, that were there. Whenever you see that number, Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's likely a much larger number than 5,000. They only counted the men here. We don't even have to talk about that. I get it. There's some issues with that, right? But they only counted the men back then. So they counted the men. Guess what? If all those men were married, there's at least 10,000 people there. And if they have two kids apiece, each uh, unit, then you're talking almost 20,000 people. It's very likely that you're looking at almost 20,000 people at least there needing food. And so clearly, when Philip goes, listen, there's about 20,000 people out here. Jesus, that, that's, you're asking real cute questions, but I, I, I ain't got it. And he's looking at these folks, constant people that are just there, throngs of people with deep needs to be fed. And Jesus is getting ready to make this, this point very clear. And he said, one of, the, one of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. And the men numbered about 5,000. And then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. This part of the story, obviously, we, we've heard this. We, there's some really good application points here, right? You could make the, a great point uh, by saying that uh, whenever there is something that seems impossible, when you give God all you have, he can give you all you need, right? That's a really simple application, and it's very true. Five loaves and two fish, that wouldn't even feed me. I'm greedy. That wouldn't even feed me. And you've got 20,000 people, and Jesus is looking and going, okay, the boy's got that much? Give me that. We can work with it. And he's making that point. When you give him everything you have, he can provide everything you need. Awesome. But there's also something here. That really got me, even with this little boy, whoever this little boy was, we don't know his name, we don't know anything about it, but 
Can you imagine what's going through your mind if you're a young teenage boy and you've got, why do you have five loaves and two fish? Were you carrying the food for your family? Had you gone to go pick this up? Uh, is this all that your family might have for the week? Think about the selflessness this little boy has. Think about the fact that uh, this may be something, you know, he may have gone to go pick something up for his mom and maybe his dad has passed away and this is for the rest of the children. And he's, he hears this and he goes, you guys need what? Okay, I'll give everything up. Without any real promise of a return on that investment, right? But he gives. Beyond that, there's some other observations in this text that we see. You, you notice that when Jesus does this, he does meet their felt need. He, he somehow multiplies this so much so that the scripture says, uh, when they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Again, this idea that even when we give him the little that we have, he's faithful. He gives us what we need, and there's some left over, a lot left over. But here's what happens. All that's great. These needs are met. Sometimes we stop here, and we go, yes, Jesus meets our needs. So therefore, I'm going to pray that he meets my needs, because that's what I need right now. I have my greatest need. I, whatever it is, insert your feeding of the 5,000 with whatever it is that your greatest need is. And you're like, that's my greatest need. I have this, I have that. I need this thing. I'm just going to pray that he can do it because he can take a little bit and make a lot. But look at their response. When the people saw the sign, and we talked about this every time John mentions the word sign, what is he trying to do? He's trying to, he, wrote, he writes this, we see this in John 20. He writes all these words to, to convince us that Jesus is the son of God that Jesus is God in the flesh. So when these people saw this sign, when they saw this happen, look at their response. They said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Now that's a true statement. That's echoes of, of what we see back in Deuteronomy. You think about what Moses said would be true. Uh, he said in uh, chapter 18, verse 15, he, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so that we will not die. They know, those, they know that passage. They know that scripture. And they're going, oh, this, this is it. They realize another one of our needs is met. We've been waiting for Moses again. We've been waiting for the spiritual leader that's going to take us into this political victory that we've been waiting for for so long. So this Jesus, he just fed us, but he's meeting a, a deeper need. He's the spiritual leader we want. So they immediately on the surface, ostensibly, it looks like they're, they've got the right point. They're taking the right approach. They saw the sign he had done. They said, this is truly the prophet who was coming to the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Wait, I thought this was a good story. It's supposed to be the end, right? That's supposed to be the cute part. Like they, they got their needs met, end of story. Jesus is the winner. They're all good. But Jesus is realizing something. This is why we have to go back. What's our greatest need? Whatever your greatest need is, you will now hold Jesus hostage to be the leader or to be the savior you want him to be and not the one you need. See, the savior they wanted was the political savior or the savior that could feed them. For some of us, it might be the savior that can heal us the Savior that can deliver the, the, the job that we need, 
the Savior that can... This is why it's dangerous when we turn God into this cosmic Santa Claus. God, your job is to meet my needs, and whatever I determine to be my greatest needs, that's what you're going to do. See, Jesus looked at this crowd. They had needs met, and they were like, this is him, and they're by force trying to take them and almost uh, give him this coronation and make him their king right there. All makes sense, right? It's not that it's illogical, but there's a problem. The problem is, again, when I hold Jesus hostage to be the savior I need versus the one he declares himself to be, I've remade Jesus. And then when he doesn't do what I think he ought to be doing, I think he failed me. You realize that this, it wasn't like these folks uh, went off and never got hungry again. It, it wasn't like, you know, you, you realize there could be people here. This is how we are. People here. God did this incredible miracle. Now they're expecting the miracle again. You get to a place where maybe we don't have any food uh, this week. Well, he, he did it then. Then he ought to do it now. And if he doesn't do it now, why have you let me down? Why? Because the Savior that I created was one that always uh, meets these needs. But that's actually not what's happening here. Jesus realizes that. He realizes, okay, I've met their needs. I've given them some of these immediate needs. We've been able to bring relief to those areas, but they still don't get it. They actually still want me to be this kind of a savior over here. And so he retreated. Somehow he withdrew. This is where he's just some kind of amazing God because you got like 20,000 people. I don't know how you just disappear amongst 20,000 people, but he did. And then you see the reason why John, I think, includes this is because he's just moved from people needing a very physical thing, right? Subsistence. A form, they, they needed food, and we see that. And then you see that they thought they were getting the spiritual leader they wanted, and they had that wrong, and he retreats. Then verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat. And they were afraid, but he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once, the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Why does John even include that here? I mean, why? why this seems like just such a different story from the, from the first one. But think about this. He's really showing us how we function when we think we know what our greatest needs are. See, the, the, the food part, right? If you look at Maslow, that's that base level, right? You want to make sure that you've got food. Now you've got these guys who were with him going, okay, they're just following Jesus. They still don't quite get really what he's about or who he is. They get little pieces here and there, but they're still not quite sure. And all of a sudden, the, the, everyone's clamoring, and Jesus is, is disappearing, is moving away. They get into this boat, and they're trying to find Jesus. They can't find him. They get on the water. The water starts to rouse up. Ultimately, what we're seeing is a storm is brewing. If you know anything about specifically uh, in, 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 when, when you look at like that time in history, in ancient history, water was always a very scary thing. That was almost a sign of judgment because it was something that couldn't be predicted. You could have large things in the sea. They would have uh, myths written. There's a reason why myths are often written about animals and, 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 and creatures in the water because that was always looked at as like this scary, uh, this, this, this unknown. And so 
as soon as a storm hit, that was it. You, you didn't know if that would be your last time. They didn't have the same kind of nautical competency we have now. They didn't have the meteorological competency that we have now. They weren't sure what would happen. So they're sitting in, this, in, in the Sea of Galilee, waiting for Jesus, looking for Jesus, rowing. They get out two or three, four miles, and all of a sudden, a storm starts coming. Now, this is where the needs come in. At that moment, what's your greatest need? When you were hungry, your greatest need was getting food. When you thought there was a chance that your political leader had arrived, your greatest need was having that political leader. Now you're in the middle of a storm in which you could die. What's your greatest need? Deliverance. That's your greatest need. No one would argue with that. But what happens? Jesus, all of a sudden, they look out. They're waiting. We don't even know like, what they were thinking. Some people wonder if maybe they had just started to roll because the crowds were getting too much. Jesus had already disappeared, and maybe the crowds are going, what did you do with him? Where is he? You guys have been with him. You're his closest friends. You're lying. How do you not know where he is right now? Can you imagine how panicked they must be? You have a mob now of almost 20,000 people looking for the man that they thought would be everything they needed. So now they're rowing, they're out there, where is Jesus? He's always doing these tricks on us. What is, he, what is he trying to teach us? They get in the middle of the water. The storms are there. The water is, is rustling. Winds are picking up. They're scared. And all of a sudden they look out and they just see Jesus just chilling, walking on the water, just strolling up to the boat. And as he gets there, he says, don't, don't worry, it's just me. It, it's, it is I. You know, it was one thing that I never thought about until I was studying this this week. The Bible never tells us that Jesus calmed the storm here. We have other stories where Jesus indeed did that. But, but the Bible doesn't say that he calmed the storm here. All we know is that he showed up and said, don't be worried because I'm here. What, what, what am I getting at here? Sometimes we believe that our greatest need is deliverance. When Jesus is saying, your greatest need is my presence. Think about that. That means that if you choose God not to end the storm, which happens often, you know, we, we would love to think that just following Jesus means anytime there's a storm, he will end it. But more often than not, and we pray for that and believe he can do it, but more often than not, what, what our prayer lives really should look like is, Lord, in the midst of the storm, will you just show up? Will you make me know that I'm not alone in the midst of the storm? If I have to suffer in the midst of the storm, allow me to suffer well for your sake with you right there at the helm. Because more, And when you look at the history of those that followed Jesus, that was their life. Very rarely do you see the ones that followed Jesus living a life where things got tough, God took the storm away. Things that, no, oftentimes it was, here is this storm. I'm going to go through it with you. I'm going to sustain you in the midst of it. I'm going to give you the ability to suffer well in the midst of this for my sake. So here, these, these men are in this boat, and they're looking, looking for deliverance. And Jesus just shows up and says, I'm here. That's all you get. <laughs> we, we truly don't know what else what else happened here? We don't know anything else other than the fact that Jesus is saying, you, you don't just need this. Yes, I'm not arguing that you need deliverance. I'm not arguing that, but your greater need is my presence. 
Your greater need is to know that I'm here and to actually live a life that shows I believe he is truly with me. I believe he is truly here. He is holding me up. The reason why Jesus is doing this is because he's realizing this, that for all of us, in different ways, we have our own idea of what our greatest need is. For them, it was my greatest need is Moses, my greatest need is food, my greatest need is deliverance. We have any number of those things for ourselves. And we are constantly having to be challenged. Jesus, is it true? Is it true of my heart when I say that like you are all I need? We sing it all the time. You are all I need. But really, if we're honest, we should be saying, you are all I need with certain conditions. You're everything I need as long as you're the Jesus I painted for myself. I've, I've created you to be a certain kind of Jesus, so don't let me down. And then we feel more pressure when we've told other people that this is the kind of Jesus that he is too. Then it's like, don't make me a liar. Don't, don't, don't make me look bad. Because I didn't told him this is the kind of savior that you are, so you just got to show up and do this for me. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting when uh, Jesus comes up and he's constantly comparing, doing these things that compare himself to Moses because most of these folks, specifically this Jewish community, this is, this is almost the most ridiculous comparison you can make. But yet they saw the comparison clearly because that's why they thought, this is him. This is, this is the Moses that was promised to us. And yet in the midst of all of this, he never really gives them what they want. He gives them what they need. That's hard for us to accept. Because we conflate the two. We think that what we want is ultimately what our greatest need is. And Jesus comes and shows that what you think that you want, there are certain things that we'll meet for sure. But Jesus didn't come to just give you everything you want. Matter of fact, he didn't even come to give you everything you think you need. He loves you enough to realize that, y'all, in many ways, if he gave us what we thought we needed, it could actually be really damaging for some of us. Because we really don't know sometimes what the deepest needs are. So when we ask for something, sometimes, you know, this is why I don't like it when people think that, uh, whenever people say, you know, we prayed and the Lord answered. Because implicit in that is, an answer is always yes. That's the only way I know God answered is when it's yes. I've rarely heard somebody say, so thankful for God's answer, he said no. We don't normally go there. And yet there are times where we need to be so thankful that he did say no. Because if we got what we thought we needed, where that could have gone, where we would have been, or likely where we should have been, is a place Jesus loves you so much not to give you everything you want and not to give you everything that you think you need. Because ultimately, he's like, I want you to be in a place where you are forced to have to see that I am your greatest need. So what he gives us, what he brings us, is whatever it takes in order to take us to a place that says, Lord, you are my greatest need. Need. How do you know what's your greatest need? You pray in such a way that the only thing that will calm your soul, the only thing that will satiate what's happening spiritually in you is Jesus. Lord, help me mourn in such a way where ultimately the greatest comfort is you. Give me a, a, a knowledge and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a wherewithal to know how to pray in such a way that my greatest prayer is more of you. We told the story before um, uh, one preacher put it this way and said, imagine, and I'll, I'll connect it to this, imagine whatever your idea of heaven is. Just think about how you view heaven. You think about what it looks like at the end. 
Lots of different theories. Usually, the way you think about heaven is kind of tied to that hierarchy of needs we just talked about. Heaven is a place where I either don't go without over here or I get so much of this good thing over here, right? Heaven is, uh, maybe it's lost loved ones and I get to be around those lost loved ones. Maybe it's, I have uh, uh, something that's plaguing my body and and I'm going to be in a place where that won't plague my body anymore. Maybe I've got broken relationships that I can't wait for them not to be broken anymore. So when I think about heaven, that's what I think. I think, Lord, it's so great. I get to go to this place. I get to be in this uh, uh, environment where none of those things that have been harming me will be there anymore. Here's the question. If you get to heaven and all of that need that you described, if that entire need is met, but Jesus isn't there, is it still heaven for you? That, y'all, that's the actual question. Because for the people in this story, they still couldn't get it the same way we don't get it. We, I mean, ultimately, the, this big question was, they were like, yeah, we thought we knew what we needed, and, and we thought, uh, ultimately, we want what Jesus can bring, but we don't necessarily want him. And that's actually where we find ourselves. Every single time we're in a place of real desperation, It's really easy to say I love Jesus when everything is going really well. But when the unexpected hits, when the unforeseen hits, when the unexplained hits, the things that are painful, the things that you just, the things that for for which time does not heal all wounds. It's one of the worst things we say. It's, 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 It's so not true. There are painful things that just don't go away. So how do we mourn that? How do we mourn it? Do we mourn it in such a way that says, Lord, I'm, all those things are true. Those are real relationships that I miss, or those are real things that breaks my heart. Those are real things that have hurt me, and they hurt me deeply, and I'm wounded by them. But ultimately, Lord, help me to mourn these things in such a way where the only thing that brings real relief, the only thing that brings real comfort is more of you. So if I'm lonely, it's not, Lord, the greatest thing you could do for me is bring someone in my life. That's all great and fun and wonderful and nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, the greatest thing you can do is enlarge yourself in me in such a way where that is not my greatest need, where I see that that's not my greatest need. It can still be a need and a a very understandable one. But it's such a, it's it's a thing. Once we get to a place where where we are able to cross over into this, Lord, I want you to be able to enlarge my eyes in such a way where I see, I see and I long for more of you in my life. That changes how we look at what we think we need. It changes how we engage each other. It changes how we interact. It changes how we pray. And so as we think through this, and as you think through uh, this story, every time we think through this feeding of the 5,000 and we think through Jesus on the water, this wasn't just to say, hey, I can do some really cool things, remember me. It's basically saying, "I I want you to realize that whatever you think you need more of, I am the greatest need. I will fulfill the greatest need. These folks who really were longing for Moses, Jesus is basically saying, Moses was great, but I'm greater. Your desire for companionship is great, but I'm greater. Your desire for healing is great, but I'm greater. Your desire for the right political person in office is great, but I'm greater. If we don't get to a place where we see Jesus as our greatest need, 
we need to really ask ourselves, which Jesus am I actually following? What Jesus do I really believe? What do I claim to really believe about this Jesus? Do I really believe in the Jesus that showed up? Or do I believe in the Jesus I made up? May we be a people that longs for Jesus' presence, for his very spirit, and let that color what it is that we need and what we want and how we pray. That's the, real, that's the only way that we find ourselves in real contentment. So regardless of what Maslow says, regardless of what Moses says, Jesus is actually our greatest need. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enlarge our vision and that you would give us a deeper understanding and even a deeper appreciation for what we actually need. God, I'm thankful that you don't even wait for us to figure out everything that we need before you begin to provide what we need. God, I'm so thankful for the ways in which you uh, impress yourself upon us, you impress your spirit upon us, you uh, allow us to begin to just get glimpses and pieces of the things that we need, and yet you remind us that we still don't even know how we ought to pray. And we don't know how we ought to pray, Father, because we still, we still struggle with being able to ascertain what, what our greatest faults are, where our greatest brokenness is, and where our greatest needs are. And yet you pray, your spirit prays for us in words and groanings that can't be uttered. So Father, I thank you that you stand in the gap. Even when we're praying, we don't realize that we have a need to pray better, but we can't do it. And you do it for us. God, I pray that even as we think through this, I pray that you would allow us to catalog some of the things that we think we need most. And I pray, Lord, that if we are putting too much weight on those things at the level or above the level that you should be, God, I pray that you would give us a deep discomfort, that you would give us a deep rustling in our own hearts and our own spirits. Father, I pray that you would make us people that are increasingly aware of how much more we need of you. God, any place where we look at our lives that are broken, any areas of sin, any areas of doubt, any areas of faithlessness, God, it's not more stuff that we need. It's not more proof that we need. It's not more occurrences in our lives or more miracles that we need. God, we just need more of you. We just looked at people who saw incredible memories, uh, incredible miracles and still missed you. So God, I pray that, yes, we pray for the miracles. We pray for the mystery. But God, I pray that we do not miss you. Make yourself present. Show us through your spirit who you are, what we need why we need you. And God, I pray that we would hold on to that in such a way that nothing else will satisfy our desire but you. And we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.